We began a new series last week on the book of Nehemiah. This comes to us in the middle of the biblical drama where the Israelites are coming out of exile and entering an opportunity, a season, to rebuild. Last week we looked at chapter 1. Today we are reading chapter 2, the first eight verses. And we're going to have the scripture up on the screen. If you'd like to follow along, I invite you to open your scriptures if that's helpful to follow along. Would you join me by standing for the reading of the word today as we read Nehemiah 2, 1 to 8. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, and so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you be seated? Join me in prayer. Gracious God, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of our heart would be pleasing to you. Lord, I pray that you might meet us in the places where we see rubble, where we see deconstruction, and you might point us towards hope. And for that, Lord, mere words cannot accomplish that. We ask that your Holy Spirit, would, who breathed these words into life, would be breathing life into us, that these words might move into our hearts and set us free. And for that, Lord, we ask for your help. We ask for your will to be done, your kingdom to come in this space. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. I... Um, I heard about a phenomenon that sometimes happens after a wildfire, after a forest fire. If the conditions are right, something called a super bloom can happen. This is when there is this just super bloom of wildflowers that emerge out of the ashes. Because the debris of the forest has been removed, there is uh, a lot of sunlight that is coming down. And because the fire burns away the wax from the, the, the wildflowers, they're able to receive oxygen and germinate. And when the sunlight and the oxygen and water happens, the super bloom emerges from the ashes. Peter Sung is a conference coach who coaches us pastors in our conference. And he 
spoke about this as a metaphor for what the post-COVID church might look like. He just named the fact that for many of us, personally, corporately, we've experienced a wildfire of sorts. So there's been a lot of deconstruction. Some of the cherished rhythms that we had were on hold. Life's just very different. We've emerged from a lot of suffering. And Peter Sung challenged us and invited us to have the hope and courage to be on the lookout for a super bloom. What are the conditions that might bring forward new life? What might bring forward renewal out of some of the deconstruction that we've encountered personally and corporately over the last couple of years? I think this is a powerful metaphor for the book of Nehemiah. We began the series last week and noted that while the Israelites are welcomed back to Jerusalem, there's a long journey of rebuilding ahead of them. And Nehemiah inquires about those who had returned to Jerusalem and was discouraged to hear that the city continues to lie in ruins and, and the city gate is continuing to be broken down and it has burned. In response to this, we noted last week that Nehemiah began in a place of lament. And so Nehemiah 1.4, he said, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. We noted that we can trace the timeline between chapter 1 and chapter 2. For four months, he spent time in lament and prayer. And often I believe that is where we need to begin as we survey a landscape of deconstruction. I invited us last week into a place of lament. What is not working for you personally? What is deconstructed for you personally, corporately? I, I know some of us are experiencing pain physically. Some of us come in a place of grief. Some of us look on the landscape of our, our community and see deconstruction. Some of us are spiritually deconstructing, asking hard questions of faith, trying to reconcile God with suffering, with a church that sometimes struggles to live up to its calling. There's a lot of people in that space. I invite you to continue to name that. In order to fix things, we need to acknowledge what is broken. And sometimes things have to get worse before they can get better. But the good news that we notice in chapter 2 is that lament is not the end of the story. That out of this deconstruction, a vision is born. And what I, what I want to notice in chapter 2 is what the conditions are that lead to a season of renewal and rebuilding for the Israelites. And I want to discover what conditions might allow there to be new growth, new life in our life. What I notice for, for Nehemiah is that he moves beyond lament into a place of longing. Underneath the holy discontent, there is um, a longing that is burgeoning for him. A vision is emerging in his life. He discovers a longing behind the lament. And this is often, I think, the case for us. Out of places of pain and hardship, is sometimes where vocation is found, where vision is discovered, where we discover a desire for something better. We have a desire for renewal. Now, this comes into focus in our text, in this conversation that Nehemiah has with the king. 
the king poses a really significant question to Nehemiah that I want to zero in on. So he sees that Nehemiah is discouraged, full of lament, and into that space, the king asks him, what then do you want? What is it that you want? This is a really interesting question, a clarifying question, one I want us to wrestle with a bit today. And notice that out of this question, we hear a very clear vision from Nehemiah. And I believe that this has emerged out of a long season of prayer and fasting and lament. But he's discovered what he wants, a a God-given longing for something different. And so he responds to the king's question, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. He has an answer to this question, what do you want? He has this vision, it's an audacious vision, that I want to go into that place of heartbreak, that place of deconstruction, and be part of the renewal and the rebuilding of God's people. What do you want? (laughs) This is a, a significant question, and interestingly, this is a question that Jesus poses to us as well. Let me fast forward to the beginning of the Gospel of John. John the Baptist points his disciples in the direction of Jesus. And I want you to just notice this encounter in John 1, 35 to 38. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? Some translations, what are you seeking? I think there's something very powerful in this question, and it can accomplish a couple of things. When we wrestle with this question, what are we longing for? On the one hand, it might expose some really unhealthy desires. I think Jesus is really interested in our heart because what our heart wants is what's going to drive our life, and so we need to get that out on the table. And we may, in response to that question, just realize that some of the things I'm longing for are coming up empty for me. And maybe just honestly, we do want money, or we want prestige, or we want influence or power. But I think this question can also help us discover some of the deeper longings, the God-given desires that are, are deep within our heart. We need discernment with this question. And we know that Nehemiah's answer to this question is birthed out of a season of prayer. He's even praying in response to the question, what do you want? And he said, I prayed to the God of heaven. God, help me answer this question. And out of the season of meditating on the word of God, of praying and fasting, he discovers this deep longing. I want to be part of your work, God, of renewing and rebuilding your people. Psalm 37, 4 says, When we take delight in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. I think the true desires. As we delight in God, actually our desires change, but these are the true longings that we were really designed for. I think it's helpful for us to ask this question then. What what are we longing for? Trevor Hudson says uh, that we begin 
over time to discern between the unhealthy worldly desires and the God-given desires, the more we delight in God. And this, I've found a helpful quote. He says, unhealthy desires make our world smaller. They isolate us from other people. They pull us away from God. They seek to enslave us. They tempt us into destructive attachments. On the other hand, healthy, I'd say God-given desires expand our world. They connect us with others in life-giving ways. They draw us towards God. They invite us to share God's dream for the world. And so I extend this question to you today. What do you want? (laughs) Where do you have a desire? Where does God want you to join and partner with him in the dreams he has for this world, to be part of his redemption and restoring work in a world of decay, in a world of deconstruction? I think it begins by getting that out on the table. I invite you to sit with that question. Our leadership team sat with this John 1 text on a retreat this summer just to try and listen. What is it really that we're all about here at BCC? The second question, though, becomes very practical. Once that vision starts to emerge, the follow-up question is, how do we live into that vision? What are the conditions needed to allow the super bloom to emerge from the ashes? And what I want to notice in our text is what some of the conditions are for Nehemiah that allow him to begin to take these first steps into this vision. The first thing I I notice uh, for Nehemiah is that for him to begin to live into this vision, he needs courage. He needs courage. It takes courage to step into hard things, to be a part of important but challenging work. Notice his response to uh, the king. And so the king asks him, what do you want? And And he says, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king anyway what was on my heart. He was very much afraid. Now, I don't blame Nehemiah. We can understand why he would be afraid. The king of Persia is a powerful and scary person. This is not a democratic society. This person could snuff out Nehemiah if he didn't like him. We have evidence from the book of Ezra that this particular king was a little bit fickle, and at one point he shut down a rebuilding effort because I think he was threatened by it or his advisors convinced him in other ways. And so Nehemiah is very much at the mercy of a king. And into that space, notice the audacity of his ask. Imagine you went to your boss. He's basically saying, I want a couple years off with pay, and I want you to build my house. (laughs) And then I'm going to go start another enterprise that might actually compete with your enterprise, right? Imagine asking that of your boss. I need a couple years off. I'm going to go start a competitive business to yours, and I want you to fund it. That's basically the ask here. And so he's scared. He's afraid. I mean, this seems beyond uh, what he could imagine. This is an audacious claim to a king. You don't talk to the king of Persia like that. The other thing I think that is causing fear for Nehemiah is that the conditions in Jerusalem are still very bleak. Now, the deconstruction that's going on and the the chaos is not actually the result just of the Babylonian uh, exile from 70 years ago. The Babylonians have already been defeated, but there is current real-time conflict in Jerusalem that's happening. 
And we know from the book of Ezra that there's been all kinds of setbacks and there's opposition. We're going to discover that in the story. Uh, next week, we're going to look at resistance and opposition that Nehemiah is stepping into. And so this is a scary venture. And because of that, Nehemiah needs courage. He needs courage to step into that. Now, I'm aware that the, the courage of Nehemiah is not the product of just his good character as a human being. This is not um, a works-based message. Just buck it up and try and be courageous. Now, we see the source of Nehemiah's courage in our text. This, too, I believe, is the product of this long season of prayer. This is the product of his own formation as he has remembered who God is, as he has fasted, as he has prayed. Notice his response when the king grants this amazing request. And he says, it was because the gracious hand of my God was upon me that the king granted my request. I can courageously ask this. I can courageously step into this because I believe in the gracious hand of God upon me. I want to just speak that that word of hope to us. Can we rediscover that hope that we have a God who is more powerful than the forces we are up against? We discover again the gracious and powerful hand of God that is upon us. May that give us courage to audaciously step into the dreams that God has for this broken world. The question I want to extend to you is, is where do you need courage? What fears get in the way of stepping into that vision that you have to to make this world a better place? I think some of us probably have fears of failure, fears of rejection, fears of pain, fears that this will be hard, fears that this will be costly. Can we speak against those fears today and remember that we have a God whose gracious hand is with us as we step into these places? May God grant us courage. The second dynamic that's at play, I think, for Nehemiah, another part of the conditions that allows this, this vision to grow, is that Nehemiah practices patience. We noted this last week when he didn't rush into his rebuilding efforts, but he knew he needed some time to pray and to seek the Lord. We didn't read the rest of chapter 2, but what we discover is that he needs to have openness to the twists and turns that are going to take place en route to his vision. He, He patiently endures. He takes time to take stock of the needs. He adjusts his vision as he's on the ground. I think this is an important word for us as we seek to step out into the various callings of life is that we need to be patient at times and allow things to unfold, that things don't always work on our timeline, that we need to have an openness to the way God may adjust our plans. Eric Mason is an inner city pastor in Philadelphia. He's written a commentary on the book of Nehemiah as well. I've been reading it in preparation for this study, and uh, he talked about uh, this very interesting but important distinction between vision and plans. It's important not to confuse vision with plans. And he tells a story about how his church had a very clear vision to en- engage poverty in their surrounding neighborhood. And that was, that was the vision, but when they got on the ground, they realized that their plans were all wrong. <laughs> they had to adjust and uh, 
and adapt to what God was showing them as they went about their work. And I, I just I think that's a, a biblical posture. I see that in the Apostle Paul, if you trace his missionary journey, I don't know if you have a map in the back about Paul's missionary journey, that map was not pre-made. <laughs> that was just kind of like the ebb and flow of him re- responding to God's call, and sometimes there were setbacks, and he had this general vision, but the plans adjusted. And I think that just requires patience, humility, openness on our part, on our part. Alan Jacobs wrote a book a while ago, um, and he talked about two extremes that I think we need to avoid in the Christian life as we seek to follow God's leading. And he talked about the extremes of despair and presumption. On the one hand, there's that despair where we just let the circumstances crowd out the vision, and we're so overwhelmed. And that could have very much been Nehemiah's case. This is just a very audacious vision. And he could have been despairing. But the other extreme Alan Jacobs talks about is presumption, where it's like, I know exactly what God wants me to do. (laughs) And I know exactly how this is going to play out, and I'm just going to go do it, right? There's the other extreme of, of, of presuming we know exactly what all the steps are going to be. I think we need to find that sense of hope, but also openness and patience to where God's going to lead. My first week of college at Trinity, I met a guy, he was 19, my age, and I asked him, you know, what, what are you coming to study for? And he's like, God has told me that I'm going to start a new kind of seminary. I thought, yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, that's actually a, a, maybe a beautiful vision. But it seemed like kind of audacious, like you're 20 steps ahead. Like you probably need to go to college and maybe go to seminary yourself and be a pastor for a while and see what the needs are, (laughs) right? This was like a 30-year away vision. Now, I don't discount that God might not have been in that, but you hear kind of the presumption in that. Like I know exactly where I'm going to be 30 years from now. I think God invites us into a patient, open posture to allow things to unfold in God's timing, to be willing to adapt to the circumstances. Uh, the, the third thing, I got a couple more points here, conditions that I think allow this vision to grow, is that Nehemiah spends time in preparation. I think this is some hopeful news to those of us uh, who feel stuck in circumstances that are not ideal. That maybe we have a vision, but currently we feel stuck and for a while, Nehemiah is pretty stuck. I mean, he's cupbearer to a king, and there's this long season where he can't be with his people. He wants to be there. It seems like a long shot that he'll ever get to do that. I see a person who has a lot of leadership capacity, and he, I, he probably feels frustrated and stuck serving wine to a king. But what I, what I notice about Nehemiah is that he doesn't waste that time. He could have just been frustrated, but he spends time preparing for the vision should it come his way. He doesn't waste the waiting space. As the king then asks him for more details, uh, did you notice just how detailed Nehemiah's vision? He was prepared. He's like, I need you to get letters for this guy, and then this guy's going to give me wood, and then I'm going to get this pe- these people to help me. Like, he was obviously doing some work in anticipation of the possibility of this. And so I want to encourage those of you who are stuck, who are not really realizing the vision you would like to see for your life, what can you do now, or what is God inviting you to do in this preparation space? Maybe this is actually an important space. 
When we look at the life of Moses, there were 40 years of wandering in the desert before the whole vision of leading the Israelites through the desert happened. I think he needed that 40 years. (laughs) That wasn't wasted time. God was preparing him, working with him. That's, I think, an empowering thing for those of us who feel stuck, that there are some things that God can redeem about this time. What can we do to prepare? Andy Stanley tells a story about a season in his ministry. He's a pastor of North Point Church, quite a large church. And uh, he told a story about when he felt really stuck in ministry. He was a youth pastor at his dad's church, and he didn't really feel called to youth ministry. But he didn't really see, like, a path out of that. He didn't know. He had this real dream, this vision of planting a different kind of church. And so in his reflection on, on this passage in Nehemiah, he just recounts that during that time, He started to make plans, even though he didn't know if it was going to happen. But he used that waiting space to prepare. He actually drew up a church constitution. He got a graphic designer to make posters in case someday the opportunity would come by. Now, it doesn't always work out like that, but the, the general point, I think, is true. What can we do to prepare for that preferred future when it's not here yet? It's not here yet. I think sometimes God's greatest kingdom work is doing in those places where we feel stuck. This is not wasted time. And I think that, um, I think the reason why God probably used Nehemiah wasn't just because he was lucky, but because he was ready. (laughs) Who's God going to call to do this hard work? Is it those who are ready, who are prepared? The last thing I want to notice, and this is where we'll end today, is that Nehemiah soon discovers that he cannot do this alone. This is not a solo vision. Chapter 3 begins to outline all the people that help him with this. I'm actually going to skip chapter 3 because it's just a list of people. I didn't quite know how to write a sermon about that. (laughs) But there's a theological point in chapter 3 that is significant. That Nehemiah gathers together the whole people of God to realize this vision. He cannot do this alone. And you cannot do what you long for alone. That we need one another. And so in Nehemiah 2, we didn't read the end of chapter 2, but this is what we see. I want you to notice um, the plural here. Nehemiah said to them, the people of Israel, you see the trouble we are in, not me, we together. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And we will no longer be in disgrace. And he goes on to tell them about the vision God has given him. So the last question I just extend to you is, who do you need to come alongside you in your desire to grow and rebuild and renew and reconstruct? We cannot do this alone. Do you need some support right now? Do you need some guidance, some mentors in your life? Do you need to perhaps find other people who share the burden you have for a particular issue or concern? When someone comes to me with an idea, one of my reflex answers is, go find two or three people that share that, and then we'll talk a little more. (laughs) All right, we can't do this alone. And I want to say that as a word of encouragement. That is why... God has created communities like this, that we are not alone. One of the things, the conditions I think we do need in a post-COVID church, if we are to see a super bloom, is to re-engage in community. 
to, to push back against the isolating forces that have occurred over these two years. It's easy for those to reset our rhythms, for us to drift. And I just want to continue to call us back to community because God knows that we need one another. So church, I, I wonder today, what, what do you want? What longing do you have behind the lament that you feel? And what are some of the conditions that God wants to do in our hearts and in our life together so that we might experience new growth out of the ashes, reconstruction out of the rubble? Would you join me in prayer? God, I pray that you would be at work in our midst and um, that you would speak to those of us who do see uh, a lot of deconstruction on our, in the landscape of our soul and our community. Lord, I pray that you would create the conditions such that there would be new life. We cannot do this alone. We cannot make things grow. We are just like branches that need to be attached to you, the great vine. And so as we abide in, in you, as we abide in community, as we abide in your word, and as we Turn to you, Lord, would you bear good fruit, bring new life in our midst. We pray this in faith and in hope, in the name of Jesus. Amen.